So Aristotle talked about education as making us immortal. He said that's the way you become immortal. You teach someone and they convey your headspace and then they pass that on. And, and that's a beautiful and compelling idea, but that can also mean that there's a conservatism about what we do because we've done it that way. That must be the way of doing things. And so people have very strong feelings about how they think teaching should happen and how learning should happen. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. For millennia, thinkers have noted that a good life involves being a good learner. My guest today, Marnie Hughes-Warrington, is a serious teacher. In 2008, she received the Prime Minister's Award for University Teacher of the Year. And she's thinking as hard as anyone in Australia about what the university of the future should look like. But she's also a serious scholar in her own right. Marnie studied philosophy and history at the University of Tasmania and was chosen as a Rhodes Scholar in 1992. At Merton College in Oxford, she completed a thesis titled Historical Imagination and Education. Since then, she's lectured in history at the University of Oxford, University of Washington, Macquarie University. At Macquarie University, she became Associate Dean of Education uh, and has since worked at Monash University before moving to the Australian National University in 2012. Her books include 50 Key Thinkers on History, A History of Film Reader, How Good an Historian Shall I Be, and History Goes to the Movies. Marnie, thanks for joining us in the Good Life podcast today. Thank you, Andrew. So, Tell us about your own journey to, uh, to, to education. What was your family like? How was education thought of as you were growing up? Look, I come from a really beautiful and very ordinary family. My mum had to leave school at the age of 16. She was told she either I had to go to the convent or go and work at the local supermarket. She chose the supermarket. My dad looked like he was going to go to university, but he got sick uh, and he couldn't complete a degree. So he went to a technical college and he became a, a laboratory technician. And so I grew up in a household full of bits of old chemistry equipment. Uh, he was a mass spectroscopist. Uh, the story goes that he took me into his labs at Monash uh, at the age of six weeks to see the IBM mainframe. He was so thrilled about the mainframe and me that he wanted me to meet the mainframe. <laughs> uh, and so I grew up in a household with Dad. He would come home with Fortran manuals and he would leave them around. He'd write notes in Fortran hoping that I would learn to be a computer scientist. But I think he figured out early on that when we were playing Space Invaders, I'd say, Dad, why are the aliens looking out while they're flying down? I can't understand how they can see where they're going. And my dad would go, don't worry, just shoot them. And I'd go, no, no, I can't understand. And he should have twigged at that point that I was not going to have a career in computer science, that actually philosophy was going to be a much better bet for me. <laughs> But as it sounds like from that context, it wasn't a surprise to them, though, that you went to university. Uh, although they, they hadn't attended university themselves, it, it sounds like a very scholarly household. Uh, the best gift that a parent can give is just the notion that a university is a place where you can go and you belong. 
and my dad really did that for me. He never got the benefit of a university education himself, but he was absolutely determined to make sure that his four children could go onto that campus and feel that we own the place. So mm. as a six-year-old or a four-year-old, you could own the place and that when you got to the age of 18 that it would, of course, be perfectly natural that you would enrol and you would do a degree. Now, he did actually say that there was only one degree you could do. That was a Bachelor of Science. And so when I did go and look, and because there was no internet, no, Dad, there's these <laughs> other degrees, my dad would say, no, no, there's only science. You can only do science. And so I did discover philosophy. He was disappointed, but then I married a scientist and he was completely fine after that point. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember your first experience of being on campus at uh, University of Tasmania, what, what those, those first couple of weeks were like? I just think you can't underestimate, you can't, you can't overstate just how important that, that feeling is to come into a place where you, you study philosophy because you don't, you don't know anything about it. And people, and I said, look, I don't know what to study as part of my education degree. People said, what do you like doing? And I said, I really like arguing. And they said, well, you must do philosophy. And I had no idea what that was. And can you just imagine you sit down in a classroom You've been taught a kind of one-speed curriculum, and it's not the school's fault. You've been reading the same books as everybody else, but you've been creating your own hidden curriculum all the way along, Mm. reading Marx, reading a bit of this, reading a bit of that. And then you turn up, and the first lecture I had, he was a Platonist, and he welcomed us all to the classroom, and he said, look, I'm not really sure that the world is real, but I'm going to give you all the benefit of the doubt today, and I'm going to teach you. And I thought, well, what more compelling a premise could you have for a subject? (laughs) And I fell in love with philosophy at that moment and I find it one of the most uh, amazing subjects because it's not only forces you to slow down and think through things, it just uh, rewards that sense of curiosity over and over and over again. And then uh, at what stage going through your studies did you think, uh, I want to be not just a consumer but a producer. I want to be uh, a, a teacher at, at, a, at a university. Was that when you got to Oxford or did you have that sort of inkling while you were at the University of Tasmania? It was it was interesting. I did an education degree and a lot of people talk them down. They say that, you know, lots of not very smart people do education degrees. I think that's wrong. Um, people very early on said to me, oh, you're a natural teacher. And I always said to them, I don't know what that is. I don't think anybody is actually born to be a teacher. Mm. I think that you you learn that actually teaching is one of the best things you can do because if you think that a good education changes the world, then you will pour your heart and soul into doing that. And I absolutely believe that. And it's not to say that health isn't important or economics isn't important, Andrew, but I actually think that investing your energy into that space can make the biggest difference to somebody's life. And mm. so I figured that out, fortunately, pretty early. And so you just have to imagine this 21-year-old with an education degree being asked to apply for a road scholarship. And I said, oh, I can't because I'm not a bloke and I don't bring beer, drink beer and I don't play rugby. So, and they said, that's not true. Get in and apply. So I applied And this 21-year-old said, I need to stand up for education because this is the best investment you can make for a better world. Um, I couldn't even believe that I would say something as ambitious as that at 21, and they bought it. And then when you are awarded that, you think, well, okay, somebody's now given me the biggest opportunity of my life, and I now have to uh, happily serve for the rest of my life, actually making that come true. 
And how was it when you got to got to Oxford? Did you have that same sense uh, that you you got at the University of Tasmania of uh, a little bit of trepidation in those uh, that that early period, or was it really sort of duck to water? Yeah, you kind of freak yourself out. You think I'm going to turn up and the people are just going to be such brainiacs. It's going to be really scary, and I won't know what to do. And you're not allowed to walk on the grass, and I don't know how to punt. And you just worry about all of those things. And mm. then you turn up and you sit down at dinner. And the guy sitting opposite you is studying robotics because we were sat alphabetically by subject, so in philosophy, robotics. And he comes from Zimbabwe and he's there um, and he's he's also on a Royal Scholarship and he's there because he's an opposition leader in Zimbabwe and you can see that his fingers are bent because he's actually been imprisoned and tortured. And you think, whatever worry I have in the world about whether I'm not smart enough or not fit enough, I need to do this mm. because there are people in the world that need me to stop worrying about myself and actually worry about what we can do together to make a better world. So you put aside all of that scary, scary stuff and you discover fantastic, interesting people talking across disciplines about how to figure things out. And that's the beauty of the college system at Oxford. And so I had a, a brilliant, an absolutely mm. brilliant time there. And I met my fantastic husband, who's a Kiwi. So I went all that way to the UK to meet my husband. And it it's a cliche to say, but it was an absolutely transformational experience, but it would be unfair not to credit that first degree at UTAS and getting that first degree and say, can you believe that, that people place faith in me to get that first degree? And that provided the platform to then go and do all these really interesting things. Yes. And do you find that many of your close friends are, are drawn from those that yeah, you, you're at Oxford with? Yeah, I've still got friends that I, I met in Oxford, um, but also I've got a close school friend that we, we travel, still stay in connection with one another, which is absolutely amazing. But my uh, my philosophy is always wherever you live is home, and so you make friends wherever you are. Mm. And there's got to be a generosity in friendship that you, you can't ever expect people to be like you or the same as you and that your friendship should be reflective of people that have very, very different interests to you um, that, you know, might have different life struggles. But that's the beauty of friendship is is about being around people that are genuinely different to you. You've, uh, you've talked a lot about this notion of the flipped classroom, about uh, spending less of, devoting less of our uh, academic energies into lectures and more into the sort of one-on-one uh, -on -one personal instruction. Was that partly shaped by the Oxford experience? Because Oxford famously places a lot of emphasis on, on tutorials. Absolutely not, because <laughs> when, you're, when you're an undergraduate at Oxford, you get that tutorial experience. When you're a doctoral student, which I was, um, it's essentially an apprenticeship in sitting still and silently in the library for three years. Mm. So I was what it taught me was to be highly autonomous. To I, I went there knowing what I wanted to do my research on. There were manuscripts, and I literally sat still for about three years, which people find really hard to believe about me, but I do say I can do that, I can pull that trick. But I also had two supervisors who actually disagreed with one another quite a lot. Mm. And so it taught me how to be actually constructively assertive and say, this is my view and I'm going to argue this and these are the reasons why. And so what I did get from that was the notion that I had to steer my own ship and I had to stand up for myself and learn how to argue, convince these two people who were so much more knowledgeable than I was that actually I had a good idea and that I could present the idea really compellingly. So that's what it did teach me. And it taught me, therefore, that that learning is, has got to be driven by you. But if you're not invited to participate actively in that space, you could feel alienated or not feel that you're you're being drawn out or invited mm. to, to kind of chart your own course in that space. 
How, how did you end up resolving the uh, conflict between the two of them? Did I one look- of them yield or you found some sort of <laughs> you learn all those- <laughs> consensus between them? You learn all those valuable negotiation skills that set you up for life, basically, which was you have a really valid point here. You have a particular way of things because you've come from this tradition mm. and you here think about it this way differently and what I'm going to try and do is is bring together the best of what you're both arguing you're both teaching me something really important but in order for this to be a doctorate it has to be original thought Mm. and the originality is actually going to come from me putting together the best of both of what you're offering me basically so so partly saying you're actually both wonderful but I don't agree with either of you entirely (laughs) which in philosophy is expected that's one of the best things about the humanities and social sciences we are not expected to agree with one another Mm. now that can be a disadvantage because we don't get together in big cartels and get huge amounts of funding like some other disciplines. But I love the fact that you are expected to stand up for yourself and actually say, this is what I think is right and this is why I think it's right. And how do you characterise your own learning style? Um, <laughs> so I suffer from smart girl syndrome, which is I'm a very... <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't heard this before. Tell I'm me self-diagnosing, more. okay? I'm a very quick reader. So I have just consumed books I could read before I got to school. Uh, and, in fact, I got beaten up in primary school because uh, I, I, was, I grew up in a very blue-collar area. I turned up to school knowing how to read. And some other kids, you know, didn't like that very much. And that became, that was very surprising to me to actually mm. find that people couldn't read. Um, and I discovered, of course, they never went into the library because they couldn't read. So I would just go into the library and, and I read my way through the primary school um, library, basically from grade one all the way through to six. I just was in the library every single day working my way through alphabetically and getting really angry when they acquired new books because I'd have to go back and make sure I got the new acquisitions included in there. So it's a very self-driven way of learning. But the best thing that I was taught about my schooling experience was, yeah, sure, you can drive yourself and be really smart. But unless you have a sense of compassion Mm. about you, about why that person might be angry with you, then you haven't learned anything. So you can be smart, but you're not wise. So my learning style is I'm very quick. Um, I'm quite synoptic. I like connecting really strange things Mm. together. And I think philosophy encourages that. But I try to also be quite empathetic and say, how does the other person think about this idea? Can I come at it from their their particular angle? And how would I learn better if I thought about about that that way? But yeah, very self-driven and fast. Your um, your story reminds me of, uh, I think it's in Sartre's Nausea, where there's a character called the Autodidact who has identified all the books in the world that need reading by the time he dies. Uh, and it turns out that he can only converse about the authors uh, with last names from A to M because the M is the letter that, he, that he's up to. Uh, and uh, by the time he dies, he will have read, uh, read up to Z. Uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and, and would presumably yes. have been similarly frustrated by authors <laughs> yes. with last names of A who wrote, wrote, wrote new books. Um, when you say fast, how fast? Um, how so long does it take you to read a book? Uh, I would normally read three or four books a week. Um, Ouch. Yeah. Um, and, you know, to the point where I can read it quite quickly and, and figure out what's going on in there. But some books you do want to read really slowly. So when I did read Nausea, I, I felt my primary school life had been diagnosed and so cruelly described. <laughs> in that, and it was a really good thing. So <laughs> tell, us, tell us how to read fast. For those of us who kind of have piles of books by the side of the bed which have been sitting there for ages, like how do we uh, read fast and well? I, I actually don't – that's a really horrible thing, to, but I don't know. I guess 
the best advice I'd give you is if you have a parent that reads to you from a very young age and you are surrounded by texts, then you 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 immerse yourself in them, you drink them up really quickly. And and funny story is in grade one, I had read all of the readers in the classroom. I just worked through all of the collection and the, and the nuns basically said, look, you're going to have to go back to the beginning. You'll have to go back to reader number one with Dick and Jane. And That's I thought terrible. this is an appalling thing, but they had no money. So you have to be sympathetic to them. So I, I said, look, I've got a solution. So I went home and I got my mum's copy of Jaws and brought it in and I'll, I'll read that instead. And the nun said, I don't think that's appropriate either. <laughs> so it's as a child, just finding a way of reading, consuming anything. So my granddad, who had no money at all, he, he didn't even have a car, he found a 1930s set of encyclopedias that were being thrown out at a school that he was painting uh, called the, Ch- the Wonder Book. And it's great. I'm writing on Wonder now. And there's 12 volumes of this and he brought it home. This just this old pile of books. Now, I grew up in a, a beautifully supportive family that didn't have any money at all. So my dad would take me to the library, but he couldn't afford to buy any books at all, pretty much. So granddad bought this set of 12 home and I read the whole thing, right? So from A, right through... You read through the encyclopedia. I read the encyclopedia. And what I loved about it was that it was from the 1930s. So the knowledge was not current knowledge. It was actually from the 1930s. So I was as much intrigued by the outfits the understanding of how the world worked in the 1930s and what they thought the year 2000 was going to look like. There was a whole section on what the future was going to look, which I laughed and laughed. So I'm afraid I've avoided your question, but um, I guess I'm not conscious of actually reading the words when I'm looking at the page. The whole page is sitting there in front of me and there's particular words that are just just leap out to you and have a resonance with you and your mind thinks about the elasticity of that word and how it relates to everything else that's sitting on the page. So I don't don't read line by line and I I don't see like those speed readers who put their finger under the text, I don't do that. I will just be conscious that I'm looking at the whole page and I might be reading the first line and then the last line and then I might be in the middle there and I'm sorry, that's not very helpful as an answer. (laughs) Do you read with a pen in your hand? Uh, Uh, Yes. Uh, I changed my mind about that. I used to assiduously never mark a book. I thought it was sacrilegious to do so. And then I wrote a book called Revisionist Histories. And there was a chapter in that book where, um, with the help of a research assistant, we actually um, scanned every history book in the Macquarie University Library. And what we were looking for were marginalia. We were looking for evidence of people writing themselves into history books um, and asserting their own identities and found all kinds of interesting things and some very actually quite disturbing things as well. So people writing over the text of Holocaust history, some quite offensive texts, razor blading out pages, gluing pages together. But then sometimes just writing very funny quips. So there was a brilliant Australian history from the 70s, which is going on and on about, you know, great men of Australia. And this person had gone through and assiduously annotated the entire book and added women's names in all the way through and added footnotes of all these feminist histories you could actually go and read, (laughs) (laughs) which I thought was just a brilliant thing. So when when I did that book, project, I I love the fact that some people were renegotiating the texts that they were reading Mm. and actually saying, you know, you're missing something here. So I thought, well, I should actually start annotating. So since that point, I've actually been quite um, interested in annotating texts. Mm. So Mm. my library is kind of blank up to a certain point. And then from about 2005, uh, you'll find that my books are annotated and I don't apologise for that and I don't view it as vandalism. I actually just view it as a way of you having a relationship with the book that you're reading. 
But it's not one of the techniques that goes into your being able to digest books faster than God. No. No, God, no, faster than you, Andrew. (laughs) Uh, No, no, I'm a terribly slow reader and so that's why I just took this this big left turn in this this interview because I think the ability to read books fast is, is extraordinarily important. And one of the, I suppose one of the things I've noticed as I've gotten older is that the constraint is not the money I have to buy books, it's the time I have to read them and, and maximising what I, how I use that time, stopping books midway through and putting them off to one side, recognising that I will die with many books left unread has, yep. has been one of the sort of challenges for me, but it sounds like there will be far fewer books left unread uh, when you shuffle off the model coil than I. Than I. <laughs> one of the things I love about my job is when you work in a, a, a people-intensive environment like university, people are so proud of their books and their journal articles, so they cotton on that you're interested and so mm. people do send me their books so I'll be reading for my current book and reading all kinds of philosophies but people will just send me economics texts or they'll send me a chemistry text or they'll send me and I'll read those as well and I just love doing that because somebody's poured their heart and soul into yeah. this work and you can feel the love in the book and you just you really want to give it the time and read it and then I'll tweet out about it and let people know how much I enjoyed reading it and what a gift it was to be given that given that book. So you do get derailed, technically derailed, but right. actually wandering in those paths actually just makes you a better person because you, you learn to understand the people that you're working with a lot better. Yes. Uh, and then, of course, you come up to movies, which where presumably, unless you've got some way of watching them at double speed, you take just as long as anyone else to watch a movie. <laughs> yes, I do, but I have to confess that, that Titanic is much better on six speed or 32 speed. It works really, really well. <laughs> you, have, uh, you, you do watch movies fast? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, uh, some movies I have, so okay. um, 300 and things like that. I thought it's actually quite boring on single speed. I'll just watch it on double speed. <laughs> so I had to watch a lot of movies writing about them mm. um, and you can your patience can get a bit thin, but, yeah, you do have to watch them like everybody else. And I did writing that in that book on historical films about the the notion of, of getting a DVD and actually not watching it sequentially. Mm. Would we find that a very disturbing idea? We likely would. You can't start at Chapter 8. You've actually got to start at Chapter 1 on a movie and you've got to watch it through linearly for it to actually make sense and you generally have to watch it on one speed. But my job as a philosopher is to say, well, why not start at Chapter 8? Right, right. <laughs> memento, memento style. Uh, exactly, yeah, exactly. It's one of my favourite movies, yeah. So uh, what are your favourite historical movies? Oh, that's a really good, that's a cruel question. Or what do you, you what do you, what do you enjoy? Uh, movies that you go back to, you you, you watch watch repeatedly. Um, so, Distant Voices Still Lives is one of my favourite movies. It's a British film um, set in the nineteen fifties. It's not filmed linearly. It's actually set in a domestic setting, and it, it will hone in on very everyday events, and and it will it will present itself as a series of kind of photographs of a family, a very ordinary family. They'll be standing there posing for a photo and then it will wander off into a memory for a particular person. And it's it's a beautiful film. Uh, it's It resonates with a lot of the music of the period, which is just gorgeous, but it also explores some very deep themes and dark themes around domestic mm. violence as well. So it, in with very few words with such intensity explores the dynamics of of a family that you're just left speechless and kind of disturbed by part of it, realising that that they've not needed to use a lot of verbal communication in in order to explain what Mm. an experience must have been like for so many people growing up during that period. So it's 
probably one of my favourites. But I'm a total sucker for um, subtitled films. Um, so, um, particular genre, French, Italian. Oh, uh, any. Uh, I love Arabic films. I love Japanese, okay. strange Japanese films. I'm the person on the Qantas flight or the international flight who watches all the films from Sierra Leone or from Japan. I just think if you can get access to that kind of cinematic tradition, which you can't normally see always in your local cinema, mm. you'll begin to learn stories about people who have very, very different circumstances. So I'm a bit of a sucker for subtitled subtitle films. I guess the most unusual film is, is Blue, a Derek Jarman film, which the screen is just blue for two hours and it just works <laughs> for two hours. My family just find that really disturbing. Favourite probably historical film, apart from Distant Voices. Did you watch that fast? Or no, absolutely not, because it's got a lot of quotes from Wittgenstein, so it has to be just enjoyed but if you're not right. a big fan of Wittgenstein the philosopher then you're not going to sit there and stare at a blue screen for a couple of hours it's not yes. going to be a big deal for you but Shoah so that's a 16-hour film about the holocaust um, where the interviewer is really trying to understand the the burden of the holocaust upon the present day so the 70s so interviewing people in the present and understanding what it means for them mm. for there to be an empty village or for there to be family with whole um, part of the family missing, how does that happen? And interviewing train drivers and, and ordinary people and saying, how do we get to a point where we think it's acceptable to obliterate a group of people? What are the steps that we go through to do that? Or do we not take those steps? Do we just find ourselves on the platform and we're culpable mm. in those spaces? And that takes 16 hours to get you there, but it is one of the most beautiful um, films and one of the most important films that you can probably watch, I think, too. You've written, too, about uh, great thinkers in history, uh, a lovely lovely book talking about uh, 50 historical thinkers, people from uh, Thucydides and Hobsbawm and A.J.P. Taylor. Um, who, do you, who do you admire the most in terms of these historical thinkers? Uh, so my doctorate was on a guy called R.G. Collingwood. Um, he was a British Hegelian, so I love Hegel, so I worked on Hegel as part of my doctorate, um, which is a very niche offering. I'd, most people, when you say you like Hegel, they go, ooh. So I just think of Hegel as kind of thesis, antithesis. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Use that as well. And the Marxian variations. But there's a lot more to Hegel and there's a lot of... um, It's not always linear or logical. There's Mm -hmm. just overlays of thought and revisitations of thought that make his work really, really complex, which I love. Um, So you can read it at one year in your life and then come back two years later and actually not feel that you've understood it at all and you can keep revisiting. And so Collingwood was really trying to understand and interpret that for an English audience, but at the same time drawing upon traditions that are more like Wittgenstein. So he was pulling together different traditions, um, complaining that he was a very isolated thinker, but he really wasn't, Um, and inviting us all to think that the the very assumptions that we make about the world are deeply historical, that the world may change slowly, but there's still a sense that those things can change. And so Wittgenstein uses the notion of a riverbed, that that some things move quickly in a river, so the water moves very quickly. Some of the stones may tumble quickly, and some things don't seem to move at all, but they are. They're actually Mm. moving, and so, so Hegel, Collingwood, Wittgenstein, those kinds of thinkers who ask us to not take for granted the world as it is and assume that it's always going to be that way. I think they're my favourite kinds of thinkers. So to turn to the uh, slow tumbling stones that you're uh, working on at the moment, uh, you've got a a pretty ambitious project at the ANU that you're a a part of, of trying to revisit this 800-year-old way in which we convey knowledge and and build um, thinkers uh, at universities. Uh, how, 
how is ANU and, and how are you going about that, that journey? It is a slow tumbling stone. That's a nice way of describing it. <laughs> and some tumbling stones, Andrew, have tarantulas under them as well and you have to be very Isn't careful. Um, look, what fascinates me about education is how anecdotal most of it is. So we have a notion of... Um, so Aristotle talked about education as making us immortal. He said that's the way you become immortal. You teach someone and they convey your headspace and then they pass that on. And, and that's a beautiful and compelling idea, but that can also mean that there's a conservatism about what we do because we've done it that way. That must be the way of doing things. And so people have very strong feelings about how they think teaching should happen and how learning should happen. So the way to, of course, disturb that is to say, well, you know, we have evidence-based healthcare. We do systematic reviews of pharmaceutical offerings to make sure that we don't kill people. Um, you know, treating people medically can lead to outcomes that are adverse. Not educating people properly can also lead to really adverse outcomes. So why don't we put it on as strong a, an evidentiary basis as we do medicine and all the things that we talk about in STEM, well, like education is very STEM-like, so why don't we shift the basis? And so the trick is actually, uh, I was thinking about the evidence base that we could use. So it was it was a bit by accident that we, and we decided to put thermal counters in our lecture theatres. And we originally did that because we were concerned they might be overly full in week one. And so for occupational health and safety, we thought, put these thermal counters in. They'll count how many people go in. doesn't take photos, so it's not capturing people's personal details at all. Then we'll know whether the rooms are too small. Hmm. Uh, So we put them in and we thought, well, just keep them active over the semester and see how we go. Well, it was genuinely surprising to get the graphs and look and see that the numbers tumbled in about week three and they pretty much didn't come back across the board, it was a systemic a systemic thing. Now, if we thought about it logically, probably we would have got to that conclusion because many of us have taught up and lectured and in week 13 there's very few people in the room. But we haven't really thought about it on a systematic basis mm. and said, you know, it's not due to my personality or my subject or the fact that the carpet's brown. Actually, it's the structure of the learning that's the issue here. Um So getting the data was really important for us, putting it across all the lecture theatres. And as you can imagine, the data was greeted differently by different people. Some people said, I knew that, thank you. I've already changed my teaching. Some people said, well, thank you, that's given me food for thought. There's also a group of women who said thank you because I've been told that my attendance is not good because I'm not charismatic. And I'm going, well, that's a relief that we can help you feel better. And then there's a group that just said, don't ever show me that data ever again. Hmm. Uh, And you'd anticipate that. But, of course, you're working in a university full of very smart people and you go, well, surely the data is the data. And then you go on a long journey with people. And the thing to emphasise to get the stones to tumble ever so gently is to say, we have talked so much about what students need. We talk about it over and over again and yet we need more evidence of how that works. We talk so little about what teachers need in that space. How must it feel to stand up in front of a room that empties out? How would you feel? You've poured your heart and soul into your lectures or maybe you did or maybe you didn't, but you care about what you teach and you don't feel people are going to come and engage with you. I think that's an awful situation. So it's been a twofold thing to say the data really matters and we should provide evidence. And a small-scale qualitative study is not going to do it for me. So I've been arguing a lot for needing systematic review in education as well to say we should be looking aggregating results, doing checking double-blind 
to make sure that the decisions we make are based on good sound evidence and not small sample size. But the second piece of it is actually to be to refocus on and be far more empathetic to the teacher and not accuse them of getting it wrong or being out of date or, you know, being awful, but actually saying just for a moment, think about what it's like to be in that person's shoes mm. and how much stress and pressure that person must be on. Could we refocus a bit of our care upon that person and perhaps unlock the opportunity for change by helping them to feel that if we did change, then it might be more enjoyable for them as well as for the students. So we're on a slow journey, which has involved now the demolition of six lecture theatres in the university. We will replace with some retractable tier. Uh, and we've got flat floor spaces coming, which for some people are really distressing. But we just have to go on that journey together, literally, and, and deal with the hurt and deal with the change and say, hopefully you get to the end of that and you feel more valued as a person because the students are engaging with you more. Uh, you feel the knowledge is going both ways and you really want to be there. You really, really want to be there, yeah. You only mentioned the uh, demolition of the lecture theatres in passing, but uh, I do recall you saying in another talk that uh, uh, the Manning-Clark lecture theatres, which were um, demo uh, demolished a few months ago, uh, were on the timetables of 80% of ANU students. Uh, this is pretty radical stuff you're implementing. It is pretty radical stuff. So, yes, we have demolished them. Uh, it's interesting I've... I've we, we, for four years, told people this was coming. And you can imagine the clamour and the anxiety rests prior to that. Now that they've gone, it's actually pretty quiet mm. because people haven't been teaching in them. They've been doing other things. And so the anticipation of the loss has been the big, the big part of it. It is about kind of letting go and saying, you know, we have to refocus ourselves on, on where we think the magic is happening in the learning, whether it doesn't matter whether 80% of people are enrolled in that class, if they're actually not turning up, it's not efficacious. Mm, mm. Okay, we think it's efficient, but it's actually not because everybody else is out doing something else and there's somebody talking to an empty room and I'm heating that room and that person's feeling depressed. So it's not an efficient or an effective way of teaching. But it's a, it's a simple message. It has to be re-inscribed and re-inscribed and re-inscribed and re-inscribed. And now the, uh, the associate dean's education in the university are coming together and writing a one-sentence and then a one-page version of what the future of learning looks like for the university. And I'm really excited about that because for me to stand up and say I'm, I'm taking that building away um, is only half of the story. The other half is what is coming now. And can we be proud of that and be positive of what's coming? Because sometimes you have to take something away to force the issue, to force the issue. <laughs> and the case against uh, lectures seemed to be most powerfully made from this uh, this research out of MIT on on brain activity. Um, can you tell us a little little bit about what that reveals and uh, on the the impact of lectures on young brains? Yeah, so if you you just hook up students and you follow them around for twenty four hours, you find that students' brains are more active when they're asleep than when they're actually at a lecture. So, <laughs> so we call it a flatline experience. And when you see that, you go, okay, maybe there are some flaws in the study, but it is telling us something mm. really important there. Your brain's processing all kinds of things when you're sleeping. But, of course, there's lots of spikes of activities in tutorials, in seminars, in field yes. classes, in active classes. And we say, OK, we're getting the most out of that young mind and that mind is growing and changing when we are actually tugging it 
and pushing it and pulling it and engaging with it in those spaces. So I don't want to see the flat line. I said that's not mm. that's not what we want to see in learning. We want to actually see the spikes on both sides of the equation, both the staff and the students, tugging and pushing and pulling and learning from one another. So, yeah, so when you tell people that there's more going on when they're asleep, they're a bit surprised to learn that and it kind of helps to talk through that data. But the other more compelling data is, you know, you can you can have a lecture theatre, you can have it there, but if people don't come to it, then they're not learning anything. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, one of the things I really found when I was uh, an economics lecturer was that uh, in my first year there was a compunction to try and teach everything in an introductory course uh, and then read a couple of studies where they'd just done the simple exercise of going back a year later and asking first-year economics students some very basic questions that everyone should know who's done one year of economics. And most of them couldn't answer them. And in fact, their answers, their accuracy rate wasn't very different from people who had studied no economics whatsoever. Uh, so that took me much more to a back-to-basics sort of approach where the idea wasn't to try and teach a hundred things about economics, but to try and teach three things using a hundred different examples, uh, with more sort of break into a small group and discuss this problem kind of uh, kind of exercises. Um, I think I was still a long way off where I should have should have been, but it did rock me back on my heels to realise how this sort of retest a year on study had shown that effectively most economics teaching wasn't being retained. So it's it's interesting, My um, the bulk of my teaching and, and the thing that I credit for the teaching award was teaching a wonderful course that David Christian really created. It's 13.7 billion years in 13 weeks, right? So when you work at that scale, you lose all notion that you can cover everything. You basically have to say, there's a wager here and I'm going to remove things. And so you'd teach, you'd get to human beings by week nine, which is very generous, actually. You should only be doing them at the very end of week 13. <laughs> so you get to human beings and you do that and you're looking at a scale where you're seeing new things. Mm. You're actually saying, I need you to understand stellar evolution. I need you to understand the invention of agriculture. It's so critical. You're missing it when we when we teach most history curriculum. I mean, you'd get to the end and the students would write in the evaluation, but you didn't talk about Hitler. And you'd go back and say, actually, didn't mention any individuals by name in that entire thing. We took it up to scale. So I got all those, you know, you never talked about Hitler. And I thought, okay, well, why don't we subvert this a little? So I taught 13.7 billion years, asked the students to write essays, and then I asked them to self-assess their essays. And in their self-assessment, I asked them to talk about their own story in the context of this biggest story. Mm. So their own learning story. How are you going here? What are you learning along the way? And so these beautiful little micro-histories tumbled out of the cupboard, which were then conjoined. So people would be talking about agriculture and they would then start talking about their own family history, being raised on a farm, and how they understood what we were talking about with salinisation or how critical it was to have irrigation talked about in their community. And so the students were reconnecting it back. And it sounds like a kind of vanity to do that, but it's not a vanity. It's mm. actually saying, I need this big abstract story to walk in the direction of who you are. And if I do that, then there's a notion that it's, it's, you are part of that. You will own it. You'll feel responsible for it. You'll want to talk about salinisation. You will want to talk about global warming. You will want to get involved in all of that. And the students did. And they absolutely took over the course. And so week 13, they actually wrote 
the future lecture. So I would always ask them. And some of them would cynically say, are you outsourcing the work to us? And I'd say, no, absolutely not. We've scaffolded you up to the point where you can now tell this story about what you think that future is going to be. And I still get beautiful emails from students that I taught close to 15 years ago who say, I am just so struck by how compelling that that lecture was on animal husbandry. And you would never <laughs> expect that in mm. your life. But people just said it just resonated because they could begin to understand, or epidemics, they understood why these big scale things could have such a big impact on tiny little families or tiny little communities around the world. And they felt part of that. Yes. And as I say, that's not a vanity. That's just activating it for the student to say, you're part of this, you're creating this knowledge and I want you to be to be invited into the story. And and it will never let you go. If you open yourself up to this information, it will never let you. And, and, and economics is like that, Andrew. If you open yourself up to it, it doesn't let you go. You get really excited uh, about learning new things, but you have to feel like yes. you're going to get something, get something from that. Such an interesting observation, Money, because I... I downloaded David Christian's lectures through audible.com and I listened to them on my long runs and I would enjoy them as I listened to them but then I didn't really feel I retained very much of them. It was just this massive big 14 billion year year story um, and maybe maybe I needed to do the scaffolding better in order to uh, to, to to hold hold on to this uh, this huge tale. Well, no, I think it's maybe you needed the inverse Aristotelian immortality. So right, so the teacher believes that they are bestowing immortality upon themselves by teaching the student. What I did was inverted that and said, actually, to the student, you are bestowing immortality upon yourself by writing yourself into this this story, basically. So Aristotle only got it half right. <laughs> it's even more fun when the learner actually views themselves as, as reverse providing the knowledge. So probably the reason you didn't maintain it is because it was galloping through the content. But I, I guess if you were thinking along the way, you know, I did grow up on a farm or I did see that or I did think about some things probably would have stood out to you. Some parts of that story would have stood out to you more. I'm sure you loved the modernisation chapter, the industrialisation, the rise of consumer. I'm sure you retained all of that stuff, I'm sure. (laughs) Yes, it's the sort of, uh, it's that very early stuff about how stars form that I found I I didn't have a framework to, uh, to put it into. So what will the university of 50 years hence look like? Um, I think what I would hope it would look like is a place where people understand just how much they care for one another. That sounds a bit strange, but I think learning and uh, is about giving, isn't it? Um, teaching is about giving. Learning is about giving. Um, more giving uh, than taking. I think if we focus in on that and say it is that, that notion of immortality that Aristotle wanted, he wanted us to lead a happy and a good life with one another that if we understand that about ourselves, then the content may fall out of our heads on occasion. We're not reliable containers for everything that we learn. But if we do learn to look after one another and care for one another, and that leads to better medical outcomes or economic outcomes or educational outcomes, then we have done absolutely the right thing. So it's squaring the message back to that space and saying, I would love to, I'd just love to be that unusual university that says that happiness is the thing that matters more than anything else in the world. You've spoken before about the surveys that show that a majority of Australian first years say, my teacher doesn't know my name. Uh, is, is that the sort of thing that you have in mind, that there will be stronger personal relationships formed between 
the teachers and the students in the university of the future? Yeah, I just have a profound sense of sadness when I, I read that because you go into that space as a new person and just imagine that that person doesn't know your name, that you haven't felt welcomed into that community. Then if you've never been in that community before, do you feel legitimated? Mm. Do you think you can complete that degree? Well, maybe no if you're not welcomed. So I actually think that dynamic is absolutely critical uh, in, in saying, look, if you believe that a university is about social change and social mobility, then the mechanism of the change and the mobility is networking, it's being welcomed and it's being introduced to other people. So the stranger is welcomed into our midst and they're not a stranger for very long. So a student who's come from a community that's, that's never seen anybody with a degree is going to feel really left out of that space. I don't want that to be the case. I want them to come in like I did as that six-year-old and feel like I owned the joint, belong there and say I'm authorised and when I feel authorised in that space I will learn to the best of my capacity and I'll learn actually that connecting with one another and being generous towards one another is probably the most important thing that we can live our lives doing. Yeah. More of the uh, consumption of what is now lecture-given information be through watching short online videos a la Khan Academy, edX and so on? Absolutely. So some people say to me, how long have we got before the change comes? And I always say five years ago. Uh, it's already happened. So students are already doing that. They're very effective learners. They will find Khan. So he has over 500 million downloads. Uh, they're very effective. They know. They can find information. They're faster than I am at reading, right? So they can aggregate knowledge incredibly cleverly. What they're looking for is that that sense of wisdom and sageness that comes from actually being um, sanguine about that knowledge, reflecting upon it with other people and being able to work through the clamour of it mm. and saying, so for instance, you may, you may feel the intensity of the identity politics that we're living in right now and you might feel quite confused about what identity that you are kind of representing or the identities around you. To have that notion of breathing space where you can actually think about that and say, I get that, I get that, but here are the structural problems that are driving the fact that some people don't get access to healthcare or they feel alienated from politics or they feel like their kids are not going to finish school. Those are the things that we have to get our minds into and think about with some depth. And in order to do that, we have to trust one another and care about one another to have those good conversations, yeah. And how has all of this informed uh, how you're... Uh a better informed you to be a better educator as a parent, uh, both in terms of raising uh, educated children, thoughtful ch children, children who are sort of able to work out their own learning styles. I, I love my 16-year-old to bits. I absolutely adore Ari. I think being a parent is probably just the most amazing thing. Um, and it's not to say that people have to be parents, but when that person comes into your life, the notion of giving and generosity is so much a part of who you are, even when you're being kept awake at night. Um, so when Ari was born, I started reading to Ari from day one. Um, it was It's just a beautiful thing to be able to share that relationship with that person. And kind of sad when at the age of three they start reading and they don't want you to read to them anymore because they can read in their head. You feel really depressed, but then you start reading together again. Um, I think parenting is such an intensely joyful, mm. joyful thing. I love the fact that that person is their own person. 
you have to respect the difference about them. And they, you know, so Ari says very clearly, I will never be a philosopher. That's the most boring thing you can do on, on earth, basically, yes. which is me to my dad saying, I would never be a scientist. I think it's a fabulous, a fabulous dynamic. But that person then works out their niche, their place, their passion in that space. And your job as mum is just to be number one fan which I'm very happy to do. I'm very happy to be number one fan in all, you know, at high school debating, um, at fencing. I'm there on the sidelines. <clears throat> People always say, you're a very devoted mum. And I say, oh, just every mum is a good mum. You just, you love your child so much that you want to be there. And when they have a bad time, you just, you stand by and you support them. Uh, and the thing that you love about them most is that they are not you. Yeah. Uh, and in some sense, it seems as though... Uh, Yes, your daughter is as, as different from from you as uh, as as you are from your uh, your parents there. Yeah, absolutely, and the difference is there. So Ari's a, a very fast reader. Um, had the benefit of a school that kind of uh, so my school never cottoned on that I was reading all these extra things. Ari school did and accelerated. Ari is just brilliant yeah. that things have improved in education that that's happened. But this person has got a very strong view of the world, strong values and strong principles. Yes. And you, as a parent, you think, well, hopefully that's you know that person will have the courage to stand up and change the world yes. in their particular way. So that's the learning that you most value is all the stuff. Schooling is great in Canberra. It's absolutely brilliant place to raise a child, but all those values that they learn outside of the classroom are powerful as well. So let me wrap up with a few standard questions, including well, kicking off with one that uh, I don't think I've ever asked any of my podcast guests. What's your biggest mistake? Uh, every day brings mistakes. <laughs> so, so you know that clever girl syndrome. I think one of the things that people. People look at the fact that you're a road scholar and they get really scared by that. So they, some, one of my friends said to me, it's like a free kick for life. You can just basically screw up over and over again and people will just assume that you've done that deliberately and hyper-intelligently. So people do assume you don't make mistakes. I make mistakes all the time. The biggest mistakes you make are to underestimate other people or to read them the wrong way. Uh, and so I think probably that is my most common mistake is that sometimes I can jump to a conclusion about somebody's abilities and then I have to dial back and basically right. say, actually, you've not been compassionate in how you've understood that person. You're going to have to reset your understanding. And that happens all the time. So, you know, how often do I screw up? Probably every single day. Um, but hopefully as a person that's interested in education, you hopefully get better <laughs> over life. Uh, if you can't admit that you make mistakes in this job or as a person who believes in education, then you're not telling the truth. What advice would you give to your teenage self? Oh, my teenage self was so gorgeous. So um, I'm a big Smiths fan in Hobart you know, trying to be a bit of a goth in Hobart. There's not enough sun, so you are pale. It works really, really well. Um, to actually appreciate more of the humour in the Smiths lyrics, I was right into the misery side of it, but actually just understanding the humour and just lightening up a little bit, I think probably. Say to myself, it'll be it'll be okay. When you, mm. when you have not been to university or got a degree, um, you're just not sure. You, d you don't know that you can invest that faith in yourself. And I think that's probably what you'd go back and say, laugh a little bit more, but also you will be all right. You'll be okay. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Um, I used to believe that, that, um, that women couldn't get uh, access to the best jobs. I just, you know, I, I don't know why I believe that early on. I just thought that women were circumscribed in particular ways. I think I've got more aggro as I've got older and I've just thought, no, that's not the case. It's not a natural state of things. 
Uh, and if it's not happening fast enough, then I have to contribute to getting that to change. So, so I no longer believe that there are jobs that women can't do, or that that you know that there are going to be no women have done who have done this or no because I'm just seeing women do X, Y, and Z all the time now. So I have definitely changed my mind. But that's a 30 year old view of myself rather than a current current view. It's a fascinating answer too because it's. Uh, entirely the inverse of the answer that Jane Holton gave when I asked her the same question. Jane told me I used to believe there wasn't a glass ceiling until I hit it. Uh, It sounds to me as though you're saying I used to believe there was a glass ceiling and then I saw it smashed enough that that I think it's, it's breakable. I think, yeah, that's right. And I think women, and we talk a lot, we own the concept of imposter syndrome so beautifully and we self-doubt ourselves so much. And I think a kind of tweaked for me about four or five years ago, I thought, well, even if you have those doubts about yourself, you must put them aside to help other people to get through. So even if you think you're going to strike discrimination, and I have, I certainly have, um, and you laugh about it, afterwards you just have to push and I'm afraid you'd be up there with that tumbling stone breaking through that glass glass ceiling I just won't accept that women can't do those things but I also think it needs a steely eye on the structural reasons why Mm. why they're not there so you have to think about it in a really systems kind of way to try and break it yeah when are you most happy um, two things. So uh, I actually one thing is out hiking or walking with my family. Uh, so I'm a Tasmanian. So I describe myself as a person of the book and a person of the trees. So I love trees just to a, even an unhealthy point. I just think they're wonderful, great personalities. So to, to find me in the, the middle of a forest in southwest Tasmania or I married a Kiwi, the forest in south uh, southwest New Zealand, that is the happiest place for me to be on earth and to be there with my husband and, and with Ari is probably, yeah, you, I couldn't think of a better thing ever. Going for a tramp then. Absolutely. Tramp is a new word that I learned when I married a Kiwi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought it sounded kind of slightly disreputable but I've got exactly, used to it yeah. now. <laughs> uh, What's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? Um, so two things. So I read philosophy and that slows me down quite a lot, quick mm. brain. Um, but I also um, I run about 26k a week and I go to the gym every single day and I lug weights. So I, I, I'm in the gym every single day and I just think that that notion of you being healthy uh, and being happy from having that exercise is a really great thing. I'm also a really irritatingly cheerful morning person and I discovered that if I would go to the gym, that might help knock the edges off the cheerfulness, but actually it makes it worse. So. <laughs> <laughs> cheerfulness with a little dose of smugness from having yes, done the exactly gym. it makes it worse it makes it worse do you run amidst the trees in Canberra um so I discovered to my great sadness that I'm allergic to most of the trees in Canberra oh, but I'm no I'm okay. now a lot better so okay. I'm, I'm good so I will start running back out again outside but I'm it's just one of those things, and you will know this as an Andrew, Andrew as a runner, if you don't run, that you just feel something's wrong. Yes. You just have to do it. Uh, it doesn't matter how far it is, but if you don't, if you miss a run on a day, you just are uh, like a dog at the door going, oh, I need to go and run, I need to go and run. And it doesn't matter whether it's out with the trees or inside. But I do love running trees, but the downside is because I'm such a tree lover, I'm really slow. So if you were doing a 10K with me, you would be over the line so quickly, and I'd be the one up the back walking past a tree going, oh, that branch is a little different this time. So that's what happens <laughs> when a hiker... That's what happens when a hiker becomes a runner. Yeah, it's a hopeless, yeah. hopeless thing. <laughs> it doesn't sound like a bad thing about it. Um, guilty pleasures? 
Oh, so my husband is a Kiwi and Kiwis are great bakers. They are the best bakers. So if you look at their recipe books, they're 99% sweets, cakes and biscuits and 1% main course. So I don't really care about that. It's just roast lamb. <laughs> and then there's all these things. So my, my husband is not only a great baker, he very shortly will be the chief, chief metrologist for Australia. So he's into measurement big time. So he's a great great baker. So recently his dad, who is also a physicist, uh, sent him a five recipe analysis of a biscuit called the Belgian biscuit in New Zealand. It's my favourite. And he's traced back, he's got five recipes back to 1915. And he's basically drawn up a grid to analyse the various quantities of the ingredients to see what would make the difference in terms of so you put a recipe in the hands of a scientist who's also big on measurement and you get this really really interesting kind of analytical frame and approach to cooking but anything he bakes I just I love I absolutely love eating his baking. Uh, has he gone down the path that some scientists go down of molecular gastronomy? He's really intrigued by all of that um, but he He's also practical too, and I have to fess up, and so I'm very proud of him because he won he won the annual Department of Science Bake Off, the budget Bake Off this year with his <laughs> his efficiency dividend cake was the quite the hit of the of the Bake Off. He had this beautiful cake. It was red. It was black. It had a big chunk cut out of it. It was just just a beautiful, beautiful cake. You know? Oh, 98 percent there. Um, <laughs> and finally, money. Which person or experience has most shaped you? view of living an ethical life? Um, that notion that we talked about before, that notion of Aristotelian uh, immortality, uh, which is the notion of a gift being given forward to generations. Um, I'm so fortunate that I feel like I learned that early on, uh, but I still feel like I'm, I'm living trying to understand how that works. And that's how education ticks, is the notion that it's not going to be a quick return on anything that you ever do, that maybe five generations from now, people will say, why did we ever get into lecture theatres and and look at it as a museum piece and say, goodness, <laughs> we've changed since then. Um, that's good. That's really, really good. So, yeah, that's what I believe. Well, Money Hughes-Rowington, uh, philosopher, speed reader, runner, thank you for joining us at the Good Life podcast today. <laughs> thank you, Andrew. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback. So please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.